Section 31 of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Carpenter. The South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section 31, Volume 2, Chapter 15. The Eastern Sledge Journey, Part 2. By Lieutenant K. Prestrud. On November 16 we found ourselves at the 158th meridian, but on every side the eye encountered the level uninterrupted snow surface and nothing else. Should we go on? It was tempting enough, as the probability was that sooner or later we should come upon something. But there was a point in our instructions that had to be followed, and it said, Go to the point where land is marked on the chart. This point was now about 120 geographical miles to the north of us. Therefore, instead of going on to the east in uncertainty, we decided to turn to the left and go north. The position of the spot where we altered our course was determined, and it was marked by a snow beacon seven feet high, on the top of which was placed a tin box containing a brief report. On that part of the way which we now had before us there was little prospect of meeting with surprises, nor did any fall to our lot. In days' marches that varied from seventeen to twenty geographical miles, we went forward over practically level ground. The nature of the surface was at first ideal, but as we came farther north and thus nearer to the sea, our progress was impeded by a great number of big snow waves, sastrugi, which had probably been formed during the long period of bad weather that preceded our departure from Framheim. We did not escape damage on this bad surface. Stubberud broke the forward part of the spare ski he had lashed under his sledge, and Johansen's sledge also suffered from the continual bumping against the hard sastrugi. Luckily he had been foreseeing enough to bring a little hickory bar which came in very handy as a splint for the broken part. As we were now following the direction of the meridian, or in other words, as our course was now true north, the daily observations of latitude gave a direct check on the readings of the sledge meter. As a rule they agreed to the nearest minute. Whilst I was taking the noon altitude, my companions had the choice of standing by the side of their sledges and eating their lunch, or setting the tent and taking shelter. They generally chose the latter alternative, making up for it by going an hour longer in the afternoon. Besides the astronomical observations, the barometric pressure, temperature, force and direction of the wind, and amount of cloud were noted, three times daily. Every evening a hypsometer reading was taken. If I were to undertake the description of a long series of days like those that passed while we were travelling on the flat barrier, I am afraid the narrative would be strikingly reminiscent of the celebrated song of a hundred and twenty verses, all with the same rhyme. One day was very much like another. One would think that this monotony would make the time long, but the direct opposite was the case. I have never known time fly so rapidly as on these sledge journeys, and seldom have I seen men more happy and contented with their existence than we three, when after a successful day's march we could set about taking our simple meal with a pipe of cut plug to follow. The bill of fare was identically the same every day, perhaps a fault in the eyes of many. Variety of diet is supposed to be the thing. Hang variety, I say. Appetite is what matters. To a man who is really hungry, it is a very subordinate matter what he shall eat. The main thing is to have something to satisfy his hunger. After going north for seven days, we found that according to observations and sledge meter, we ought to be in the neighborhood of the sea. This was correct. My diary for November 23 reads, Today we were to see something besides sky and snow. An hour after breaking camp this morning, two snowy petrels came sailing over us. 
A little while later, a couple of skua gulls. We welcomed them as the first living creatures we had seen since leaving winter quarters. The constantly increasing water sky to the north had long ago warned us that we were approaching the sea. The presence of the birds told us it was not far off. The skua gulls settled very near us, and the dogs, no doubt taking them for baby seals, were of course ready to break the line of march and go off hunting, but their keenness soon passed when they discovered that the game had wings. The edge of the barrier was difficult to see, and profiting by previous experience of how easy it is to go down when the light is bad, we felt our way forward step by step. At four o'clock we thought we could see the precipice. A halt was made at a safe distance, and I went in advance to look over. To my surprise I found that there was open water right into the wall of ice. We had expected the sea ice to extend a good way out still, seeing it was so early in summer, but there lay the sea almost free of ice as far as the horizon, black and threatening it was to look at, but still a beneficent contrast to the everlasting snow surface on which we had now tramped for three hundred geographical miles. The perpendicular drop of one hundred feet that forms the boundary between the dead barrier and the sea, with its varied swarm of life, is truly an abrupt and imposing transition. The panorama from the top of the ice wall is always grand, and it can be beautiful as well. On a sunny day, or still more on a moonlit night, it has a fairy-like beauty. Today a heavy black sky hung above a still blacker sea, and the ice wall, which shines in the light with a dazzling white purity, looked more like an old whitewashed wall than anything else. There was not a breath of wind. The sound of the surf at the bottom of the precipice now and then reached my ears. This was the only thing that broke the vast silence. One's own dear self becomes so miserably small in these mighty surroundings. It was a sheer relief to get back to the company of my comrades. As things now were, with open water up to the barrier itself, our prospect of getting seals here at the edge of the ice seemed a poor one. Next morning, however, we found a few miles farther east a bay about four miles long, and almost entirely enclosed. It was still frozen over, and seals were lying on the ice by the dozen. Here was food enough to give both ourselves and the dogs an extra feed, and to replenish our supplies. We camped and went off to examine the ground more closely. There were plenty of crevasses, but a practicable descent was found, and in a very short time three full-grown seals and a fat young one were dispatched. We hauled half a carcass out to the camp with the alpine rope. As we were hard at work dragging our spoil up the steep slope, we heard Stubberud sing out, Below there! And away he went like a stone in a well. He had gone through the snow bridge on which we were standing, but a lucky projection stopped our friend from going very far down. Besides which, he had taken a firm round turn with the rope round his wrist. It was, therefore, a comparatively easy matter to get him up on the surface again. This little intermezzo probably would have been avoided if we had not been without our ski, but the slope was so steep and smooth that we could not use them. After a few more hauls we had the seal up by the tent, where a large quantity of it disappeared in a surprisingly short time down the throats of fifteen hungry dogs. The ice of the bay was furrowed by numerous leads, and while the hunters were busy cutting up the seals I tried to get a sounding, but the thirty fathoms of alpine rope I had were not enough. No bottom was reached. After having something to eat we went down again, in order, if possible, to find out the depth. This time we were better supplied with sounding tackle, two reels of thread, a marlin spike, and our geological hammer. First the marlin spike was sent down with the thread as a line. An inquisitive lout of a seal did all it could to bite through the thread, but whether this was too strong or its teeth too poor, 
we managed after a lot of trouble to coax the marlin spike up again, and the interfering rascal, who had come up to the surface now and then to take breath, got the spike of a ski-pole in his thick hide. This unexpected treatment was evidently not at all to his liking, and after acknowledging it by a roar of disgust, he vanished into the depths. Now we got on better. The marlin spike sank and sank until it had drawn with it one hundred thirty fathoms of thread. A very small piece of seaweed clung to the thread as we hauled it in again. On the spike there was nothing to be seen. As its weight was rather light for so great a depth, the possible setting of current might have carried it a little to one side. We decided to try once more with the hammer, which was considerably heavier, in order to check the result. The hammer, on the other hand, was so heavy that with the delicate thread as a line the probability of successfully carrying out the experiment seemed small, but we had to risk it. The improvised sinker was well smeared with blubber, and this time it sank so rapidly to the bottom as to leave no doubt of the correctness of the sounding. One hundred thirty fathoms again. By using extreme care we succeeded in getting the hammer up again in safety, but no specimen of the bottom was clinging to it. On the way back to the camp we dragged with us the carcass of the young seal. It was past three when we got into our sleeping bags that night, and in consequence we slept a good deal later than usual the next morning. The forenoon was spent by Johansen and Stubberud in hauling up another seal from the bay, and packing as much flesh on the sledges as possible. As fresh meat is a commodity that takes up a great deal of space in proportion to its weight, the quantity we were able to take with us was not large. The chief advantage we had gained was that a considerable supply could be stored on the spot, and it might be useful to fall back upon in case of delay or other mishaps. I took the observation for longitude and latitude, found the height by hypsometer, and took some photographs. After laying down the depot and erecting beacons, we broke camp at 3 p.m. South of the head of the bay there were a number of elevations and pressure masses exactly like the formations to be found at Framheim. To the east a prominent ridge appeared, and with the glass it could be seen to extend inland in a southeasterly direction. According to our observations, this must be the same that Captain Scott has marked with land shading on his chart. We made a wide detour outside the worst pressure ridges, and then set our course east-north-east towards the ridge just mentioned. It was a pretty steep rise, which was not at all a good thing for the dogs. They had overeaten themselves shockingly, and most of the seal's flesh came up again so that their feast should not be altogether wasted we stopped as soon as we had come far enough up the ridge to be able to regard the surface as comparatively safe for in the depression round the bay it was somewhat doubtful on the following morning sunday november twenty sixth there was a gale from the northeast with sky and barrier lost in driving snow that put an end to our plans of a long sunday march it was in the midst of our disappointment I had a sudden bright idea. It was Queen Maud's birthday. If we could not go on, we could at least celebrate the day in modest fashion. In one of the provision cases there was still a solitary stavanger tin containing salt beef and peas. It was opened at once, and its contents provided a banquet that tasted better to us than the most carefully chosen menu had ever done. In this connection I cannot help thinking of the joy it would bring to many a household in this world if its master were possessed of an appetite like ours. The wife would then have no need to dread the consequences, however serious the shortcomings of the cuisine might be. But to return to the feast, Her Majesty's health was drunk in a very small but at the same time very good tot of aquavit, served in enameled iron mugs. Carrying alcohol was of course against regulations, strictly speaking, but as everyone knows, prohibition is not an easy thing to put into practice. Even in Antarctica this proved to be the case. Lindstrom had a habit of sending a little surprise packet with each sledging party that went out, and on our departure he had handed us one of these with the injunction that the packet was only to be opened on some festive occasion. We chose as such Her Majesty's birthday. On examination of the packet was found to contain a little flask of spirits in which we at once agreed to drink the Queen's health. The 27th 
brought the same nasty weather, and the twenty-eighth was not much better, although not bad enough to stop us. After a deal of hard work in hauling up our buried belongings out of the snow, we got away and continued our course to the northeastward. It was not exactly an agreeable morning, a brisk wind with driving snow right in one's face. After trudging against this for a couple of hours, I heard Stubberud call halt. Half his team were hanging by the traces in a crevasse. I had gone across without noticing anything, no doubt owing to the snow in my face. One would think the dogs would be suspicious of a place like this, but they are not. They plunge on till the snow bridge bricks under them. Luckily the harness held, so that it was the affair of a moment to pull the poor beasts up again. Even a dog might well be expected to be a trifle shaken after hanging head downwards over such a fearful chasm, but apparently they took it very calmly, and were quite prepared to do the same thing over again. For my own part, I looked out more carefully after this, and although there were a good many ugly fissures on the remaining part of the ascent, we crossed them all without further incident. Unpleasant as these crevasses are, they do not involve any direct danger, so long as the weather is clear and the light favorable. One can then judge, by the appearance of the surface, whether there is danger ahead, and if crevasses are seen in time, there is always a suitable crossing to be found. The case is somewhat different in fog, drift, or when the light is such, that the small inequalities marking the course of the crevasse do not show up. This last is often the case in cloudy weather, when even a fairly prominent rise will not be noticed on the absolutely white surface until one falls over it. In such conditions it is safest to feel one's way forward with the ski pole, though this mode of proceeding is more troublesome than effective. In the course of the 28th, the ascent came to an end, and with it the crevasses. The wind fell quite light, and the blinding drift was succeeded by clear sunshine. We had now come sufficiently high up to have a view of the sea, far to the northwest. During the high wind a quantity of ice had been driven southward, so that for a great distance there was no open water to be seen, but a number of huge icebergs. From the distance of the sea horizon we guessed our height to be about one thousand feet, and in the evening the hypsometer showed the guest to be very nearly right. November 29. Weather and going all that could be wished on breaking camp this morning. Before us we had a level plateau which appeared to be quite free from unpleasant obstructions. When we halted for the noon observation, the sledge meter showed ten geographical miles, and before evening we had brought the day's distance up to twenty. The latitude was then seventy-seven degrees, thirty-two minutes. The distance to the barrier edge on the north was, at a guess, about twenty geographical miles. We were now a good way along the peninsula, the northern point of which Captain Scott named Cape Colbeck, and at the same time a good way to the east of the meridian in which he put land shading on his chart. Our height above the sea, which was now about one thousand feet, was evidence enough that we had firm land under us, but it was still sheathed in ice. In that respect the landscape offered no change from what we had learnt to know by the name of barrier. It cannot be denied that at this juncture I began to entertain a certain doubt of the existence of bare land in this quarter. The doubt was not diminished when we had done another good day's march to the eastward on November 30. According to our observations we were just below the point where the Alexandra Mountains should begin, but there was no sign of mountain ranges. The surface was a little rougher, perhaps. However, it was still too soon to abandon the hope. It would be unreasonable to expect any great degree of accuracy of the chart we had to go by, its scale was far too large for that. It was, moreover, more than probable that our own determination of longitude was open to doubt. Assuming the approximate accuracy of the chart, by holding on to the northeast, we ought soon to come down to the seaboard, and with this object in view we continued our march. On December 1, in the middle of the day, we saw that everything agreed. From the top of an eminence in the sea was visible due north, and on the east two domed summits were outlined, apparently high enough to be worthy of the name of mountains. 
they were covered with snow but on the north side of them there was an abrupt precipice in which many black patches showed up sharply against the white background it was still too soon to form an idea as to whether they were bare rock or not they might possibly be fissures in the mass of ice the appearance of the summits agreed exactly with captain scott's description of what he saw from the deck of the discovery in nineteen o two he assumed that the black patches were rocks emerging from the snow slopes as will be seen later our respected precursor was right in order to examine the nature of the seaboard we began by steering down towards it but in the meantime the weather underwent an unfavorable change the sky clouded over and the light became as vile as it could be the point we were anxious to clear up was whether there was any barrier wall here or whether the land and sea ice gradually passed into each other in an easy slope as the light was there might well have been a drop of one hundred feet without our seeing anything of it securely roped together we made our way down until our progress was stopped by a huge pressure ridge which as far as could be made out formed the boundary between land and sea ice it was however impossible in the circumstances to get any clear view of the surroundings and after trudging back to the sledges which had been left up on the slope we turned to the east to make a closer examination of the summits already mentioned i went in front as usual in the cheerful belief that we had a fairly level stretch before us but i was far out in my calculation my ski began to slip along at a terrific speed and it was advisable to put on the brake this was easily done as far as i was concerned but with the dogs it was a different matter nothing could stop them when they felt that the sledge was running by its own weight they went in a wild gallop down the slope the end of which could not at present be seen i suppose it will sound like a tall story but it is a fact nevertheless that to our eyes the surface appeared to be horizontal all the time snow horizon and sky all ran together in a white chaos in which all lines of demarcation were obliterated fortunately nothing came of our expectation that the scamper would have a frightful ending in some insidious abyss it was stopped quite naturally by an opposing slope which appeared to be as steep as the one we had just slid down if the pace had been rather too rapid before there was now no ground of complaint on that score step by step we crawled up to the top of the ridge but the ground was carefully surveyed before we proceeded farther in the course of the afternoon we groped our way forward over a whole series of ridges and intervening depressions although nothing could be seen it was obvious enough that our surroundings were now of an entirely different character from anything we had previously been accustomed to the two mountain summits had disappeared in the fleecy mist but the increasing unevenness of the ground showed that we were approaching them meanwhile i considered it inadvisable to come to close quarters with them so long as we were unable to use our eyes and remembering what happens when the blind leads the blind we camped for the first time during the trip i had a touch of snow blindness that afternoon this troublesome and rightly dreaded complaint was a thing that we had hitherto succeeded in keeping off by a judicious use of our excellent snow goggles among my duties as forerunner was that of maintaining the direction and this at times involved a very severe strain on the eyes in thick weather it is only too easy to yield to the temptation of throwing off the protective goggles with the idea that one can see better without them although i knew perfectly well what the consequence would be i had that afternoon broken the commandment of prudence the trifling smart i felt in my eyes was cured by keeping the goggles on for a couple of hours after we were in the tent like all other ills snow blindness may easily be dispelled by taking it in time next morning the sun's disk could just be made out through a veil of thin stratus clouds and then the light was more or less normal again as soon as we could see what our surroundings were it was clear enough that we had done right in stopping the game of blind man's bluff we had been playing on the previous day it might otherwise have had an unpleasant ending 
Right across our line of route, and about five hundred yards from our camp, the surface was so broken up that it was more like a sieve than anything else. In the background, the masses of snow were piled in huge drifts down a steep slope on the northwest side of the two mountains. It was impossible to take the sledges any farther on the way we had hitherto been following, but in the course of the day we worked round by a long detour to the foot of the most westerly of the mountains. We were then about one thousand feet above the sea. To the north of us we had the abrupt descent already mentioned, to the south it was quite flat. Our view to the east was shut in by the two mountains, and our first idea was to ascend to the top of them, but the powers of the weather again opposed us with their full force. A stiff southeast wind set in, and increased in the course of half an hour, to a regular blizzard. Little as it suited our wishes, there was nothing to be done but to creep back into the tent. For a whole month now we had seen scarcely anything but fair weather, and the advance of summer had given us hopes that it would hold, but just when it suited us least of all came a dismal change. The light Antarctic summer night ran its course, while the gusts of wind tugged and tore at the thin sides of our tent. No snowfall accompanied the southeasterly wind, but the loose snow of the surface was whirled up into a drift that stood like an impenetrable wall round the tent. After midnight it moderated a little, and by four o'clock there was comparatively fair weather. We were on our feet at once, put together camera, glasses, aneroids, axe, alpine rope, with some lumps of pemmican to eat on the way, and then we went off for a morning walk, with the nearer of the two hills as our goal. All three of us went, leaving the dogs in charge of the camp. They were not so fresh now that they would not gladly accept all the rest that was offered them. We had no need to fear any invasion of strangers. The land we had come to appeared to be absolutely devoid of living creatures of any kind. The hill was farther off and higher than it appeared at first. The aneroid showed a rise of seven hundred feet when we reached the top. As our camp lay at a height of one thousand feet, this gave us one thousand seven hundred feet as the height of this hill above the sea. The side we went up was covered by Neve which, to judge from the depth of the cracks, must have been immense. As we approached the summit, and our view over the surrounding ground became wider, the belief that we should see so much as a crag of this King Edward land grew weaker and weaker. There was nothing but white on every side, not a single consolatory little black patch, however carefully we looked, and to think that we had been dreaming of great mountain masses in the style of McMurdo Sound, with sunny slopes, penguins by the thousand, seals and all the rest. All these visions were slowly but surely sunk in an endless sea of snow, and when at last we stood on the highest point we certainly thought there could be no chance of a revival of our hopes. But the unexpected happened after all. On the precipitous northern side of the adjacent hill our eyes fell upon bare rock, a first glimpse we had had of positive land during the year we had been in Antarctica. Our next thought was of how to get to it and take specimens, and with this object we at once began to scale the neighboring hill which was a trifle higher than the one we had first ascended. The precipice was, however, perpendicular, with a huge snow cornice overhanging it. Lowering a man on the rope would be rather too hazardous a proceeding, besides which a length of thirty yards would not go very far. If we were to get at the rock it would have to be from below. In the meantime we availed ourselves of the opportunity offered by the clear weather to make a closer examination of our surroundings. From the isolated summit, one thousand seven hundred feet high, on which we stood, the view was fairly extensive. Down to the sea on the north the distance was about five geographical miles. The surface descended in terraces toward the edge of the water, where there was quite a low barrier wall. As might be expected, this stretch of the ice-field was broken by innumerable crevasses, rendering any passage across it impossible. On the east extended a well-marked mountain ridge, about twenty geographical miles in length, and somewhat lower than the summit on which we stood. This was the Alexandra Mountains. 
It could not be called an imposing range, and it was snow-clad from one end to the other. Only on the most easterly spur was the rock just visible. On the south and southwest, nothing was to be seen but the usual undulating barrier surface. Biscoe Bay, as Captain Scott has named it, was for the moment a gathering place for numerous icebergs. One or two of these seemed to be aground. The inmost corner of the bay was covered with sea ice. On its eastern side, the barrier edge could be seen to continue northward, as marked in Captain Scott's chart, but no indication of bare land was visible in that quarter. Having built a snow beacon six feet high on the summit, we put on our ski again and went down the eastern slope of the hill at a whizzing pace. On this side there was an approach to the level on the north of the precipice, and we availed ourselves of it. Seen from below, the mountain crest looked quite grand, with a perpendicular drop of about one thousand feet. The cliff was covered with ice up to a height of about a hundred feet, and this circumstance threatened to be a serious obstacle to our obtaining specimens of the rocks. But in one place a nun attack about two hundred fifty feet high stood out in front of the precipice, and the ascent of this offered no great difficulty. A wall of rock of very ordinary appearance is not usually reckoned among things capable of attracting the attention of the human eye to any marked extent. Nevertheless, we three stood and gazed at it as though we had seen something of extraordinary beauty and interest before us. The explanation is very simple if we remember the old saying about the charm of variety. A sailor who for months has seen nothing but sea and sky will lose himself in contemplation of a little islet, be it never so barren and desolate. To us, who for nearly a year had been staring our eyes out in a dazzling white infinity of snow and ice, it was indeed an experience to see once more a bit of the earth's crust. That this fragment was as poor and bare as it could be was not taken into consideration at the moment. The mere sight of the naked rock was, however, only an anticipatory pleasure. A more substantial one was the feeling of again being able to move on ground that afforded a sure and trustworthy foothold. It is possible that we behaved rather like children on first reaching bare land. One of us, in any case, found immense enjoyment in rolling one big block after another down the steep slopes of the Nunatak. At any rate, the sport had the interest of novelty. This little peak was built up of very heterogeneous materials. As the practical result of our visit, we brought away a fairly abundant collection of specimens of all the rocks to be found there. Not being a specialist, I cannot undertake any classification of the specimens. It will be the task of geologists to deal with them, and to obtain if possible some information as to the structure of the country. I will only mention that some of the stones were so heavy that they must certainly have contained metallic ore of one kind or another. On returning to camp that evening, we tried them with the compass needle, and it showed very marked attraction in the case of one or two of the specimens. These must, therefore, contain iron ore. This spur, which had been severely handled by ice pressure and the ravages of time, offered a poor chance of finding what we coveted most, namely fossils, and the most diligent search proved unsuccessful in this respect. From finds that have been made in other parts of Antarctica, it is known that in former geological periods, the Jurassic epoch, even this desolate continent possessed a rich and luxurious vegetation. The leader of the Swedish expedition to Gramland, Dr. Nordenskold, and his companion, Gunnar Andersen, were the first to make this exceedingly interesting and important discovery. While it did not fall to our lot to furnish any proof of the existence of an earlier flora in King Edward Land, we found living plants of the most primitive form. Even on that tiny islet in the ocean of snow, the rock was in many places covered with thick moss. How did that moss come there? Its occurrence might perhaps be quoted in support of the hypothesis of the genesis of organic life from dead matter. This disputed question must here be left open, but it might be mentioned in the same connection that we found the remains of birds' nests in many places among the rocks. Possibly the occupants of these nests may have been instrumental 
in the conveyance of the moss. Otherwise the signs of bird life were very few. One or two solitary snowy petrels circled round the summits while we were there. That was all. It was highly important to obtain some successful photographs from this spot, and I was setting about the necessary preparations when one of my companions made a remark about the changed appearance of the sky. Busy with other things, I had entirely neglected to keep an eye on the weather, an omission for which, as will be seen, we might have had to pay dearly. Fortunately, another had been more watchful than I, and the warning came in time. A glance was enough to convince me of the imminent approach of a snowstorm. The fiery red sky and the heavy ring round the sun spoke a language that was only too clear. We had a good hour's march to the tent, and the possibility of being surprised by the storm before we arrived was practically equivalent to never arriving at all. We very soon put our things together and came down the Nunatak even more quickly. On the steep slopes leading up to the plateau on which the tent stood, the pace was a good deal slower, though we made every possible effort to hurry. There was no need to trouble about the course. We had only to follow the trail of our own ski, so long as it was visible. But the drift was beginning to blot it out, and if it once did that, any attempt at finding the tent would be hopeless. For a long and anxious quarter of an hour it looked as if we should be too late, until at last the tent came in sight, and we were saved. We had escaped the blizzard so far. A few minutes later it burst in all its fury, and the whirling snow was so thick that it would have been impossible to see the tent at a distance of ten paces, but by then we were all safe and sound inside. Ravenously hungry after the twelve hours that had passed since our last proper meal, we cooked an extra-large portion of pemmican, and the same of chocolate, and with this sumptuous repast we celebrated the event of the day, the discovery of land. From what we had seen in the course of the day it might be regarded as certain that we should be disappointed in our hopes of finding any great and interesting field for our labors in this quarter. King Edward Land was still far too well hidden under eternal snow and ice to give us that, but even the establishment of this to us somewhat unwelcome fact marked an increase of positive human knowledge of the territory that bears the name of King Edward VII and with the geological specimens that we had collected, we were in possession of a tangible proof of the actual existence of solid ground in a region which otherwise bore the greatest resemblance to what we call barrier elsewhere, or in any case to the barrier as it appears in the neighborhood of our winter quarters at Framheim. Monday, December 4. The gale kept on at full force all night, and increased rather than moderated as the day advanced. As usual, the storm was accompanied by a very marked rise of temperature, at the noon observation today the reading was plus 26.6 degrees Fahrenheit. This is the highest temperature we have had so far on this trip, and a good deal higher than we care about. When the mercury comes so near freezing point as this, the floor of the tent is always damp. Today, for once in a way, we have falling snow, and enough of it. It is snowing incessantly, big hard flakes almost like hail. When the cooker was filled to provide water for dinner, the half-melted mass looked like sago. The heavy flakes of snow make a noise against the tent that reminds one of the safety valve of a large boiler blowing off. Inside the tent it is difficult to hear oneself speak. When we have anything to say to each other we have to shout. These days of involuntary idleness on a sledge journey may safely be reckoned among the experiences that it is difficult to go through without a good deal of mental suffering. I say nothing of the purely physical discomfort of having to pass the day in a sleeping bag. That may be endured. In any case, so long as the bag is fairly dry. It is a far worse matter to reconcile oneself to the loss of the many solid hours that might otherwise have been put to a useful purpose, and to the irritating consciousness that every bit of food that is consumed is so much wasted of the limited store. At this spot of all others we should have been so glad to spend the time in exploring round about, 
or still more in going farther but if we are to go on we must be certain of having a chance of getting seals at a reasonable distance from here with our remaining supply of dogs food we cannot go on for more than three days what we have left will be just enough for the return journey even if we should not find the depot of seals flesh left on the way there remained the resource of killing dogs if it was a question of getting as far to the east as possible but for many reasons i shrank from availing myself of that expedient we could form no idea of what would happen to the southern party's animals the probability was that they would have none left on their return supposing their return were delayed so long as to involve spending another winter on the barrier the transport of supplies from the ship could hardly be carried out in the necessary time with the ten untrained puppies that were left with lindstrom we had picked out the useful ones and i thought that should the necessity arise they could be used with greater advantage for this work than we should derive from slaughtering them here and thereby somewhat prolonging the distance covered the more so as to judge from all appearance there was a poor prospect of our finding anything of interest within a reasonable time. End of section 31